Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins from the Box and One podcast. Welcome back. It's been a few long months here. We've we've been absent from the podcast. We focus on the, the basketball team that I coach during the season. Takes me away from recording podcast episodes once or twice a week. But the season is done, which means I got a little bit more time on my hands to devote to exactly doing this stuff, diving into prospects, having some nuanced conversations, talking about philosophy as we head into really the heart of the NBA draft cycle. As it stands right now, this is the last day of February, which means we've got March, April, May, and June lying ahead to really dive into the tape on a lot of these guys. Now, that being said, March ends up being a really busy month from an evaluation standpoint because it is the last chance to see a lot of players play on their college teams or on their pre-professional tracks. Uh, one of the things that I always talk about is the value of championship level experience. And that's something we're going to see throughout March Madness, throughout even conference tournament week for a lot of mid-majors or, or guys whose seasons are really on the line. And I wrote an article about maybe catching a couple guys uh, who won't have the opportunity to be playing deep into the postseason before time runs out. Uh, you can check that out at the box and one or on a recent podcast that I did with Sam Vicini on the game theory podcast. But it's an interesting time of the year beyond just the evaluation side of things for the NBA draft. We're really closing in on the coaching carousel opening up, and that's going to change a lot in terms of the landscape of college basketball. The transfer portal is huge now. And it's a little bit more limited. Guys have to make decisions earlier in the cycle than later. I think that's going to impact the NBA draft landscape in a huge regard. Coaching carousel and transfer portal are strongly related as old coaches get fired. A lot of guys like to leave those situations or as new guys take over, they tend to look to the transfer portal as an immediate fix to some of the problems that they can alleviate by being the new man on the job. We'll have some guys that declare for the draft or at least state their intentions to test the waters, my favorite phrase out there, uh, probably as soon as their seasons are done. And there are quite a few guys in this freshman class who we're really curious on as to what they're going to do. I expect there will be a lot that test the waters and try to go through the process initially, but we'll see how many of them by the end of this process end up staying in the 2023 NBA draft. But the news is going to be coming in fast and furious. We're going to try our best to keep up and do one, maybe two podcast episodes a week as we get closer to the NBA draft. But I've missed you, Hoopaholics. I'm glad to be back here. And what better way to start than with a mailbag episode? Before we get to your questions, though, there is something we are going to try here. I know in past iterations of the podcast, what we've done is try to have longer form episodes with guests where we go about 45 minutes to an hour. I start the podcast by asking them a specific basketball-oriented question, right? Trying to figure out what their philosophy is, whether it's fouling up three or trying to play out different scenarios at the end of the game. We're starting a, a different trend on this kind of season, if you will, of the Box and One podcast. We're going to start with an opening monologue, so to speak, what I'm calling the pregame speech, just a quick one or two minute rant or uh, commentary on something going on in the college basketball G League overtime elite world that is impacting the way we evaluate in this draft cycle. And I think the first one I want to start with today 
is what I call first impression bias because it's impacting a lot of this draft cycle in terms of the mainstream coverage and a lot of the questions that I get asked about certain prospects. If you're not familiar, first impression bias is really this, this concept that states people are going to hang on to the notion that they get about a person from the first time they interact. And I think that's really applicable in a scouting sense, particularly when you watch so many players play throughout the year. The first time you tune in to see them, you're going to be impacted by what catches your eye immediately and hold that kind of as an overarching view of the player. So I'll give one example here. If I were to watch Clay Thompson at Washington State for the first time, and I was really unimpressed with an O of six three-point shooting performance, seemed a little bit mentally checked out of it on the defensive end, wasn't impacting the game in a ton of ways, I would probably come away from that performance a little bit down on Clay Thompson, but it would take a lot of future watching for me to feel okay in putting that performance aside and not being affected by it, even though it's just one game, it's one data point. Because of that first impression, I am impacted. I think a lot of times we talk about it from the negative sense, right? We'll we'll discuss kind of the different ways that, you know, if we see a player underperform, we hold that against them going into the draft cycle, and that might not be the case. What I want to focus on with first impression bias is kind of the inverse where there are guys who start out their freshman season, the the draft scouting season, really strong, and then start to fade a little bit more by the end, that maybe a couple hot shooting performances cover up a little bit of the reality that this player is going to face in the NBA level. And I've got a companion piece coming out on this idea of first impression bias on the box and one a little bit later this week. So I don't want to give away too many details as to which players we're specifically thinking about, but I think it's really important to take the draft cycle as a whole into consideration that a lot of times mainstream draft boards, and I'm guilty of of this as much as anybody else, my own kind of mock draft rankings tend to reflect a lot of where guys start at the beginning of the season, how quickly they come out of the gates and it's their spot to lose moving forward. As we get to the end of the season, we're going to see a lot of movement in my personal board just because the samples get complete. It's less about first impressions and trying to hang on to that spot and much more about the totality of their work. So that's our pregame speech for tonight. Always be mindful of first impression bias because I think it definitely factors into how we evaluate prospects. All right, Hoopaholics, let's get to those questions now as we move To your Twitter feedback here, sent out a mailbag tonight, got a couple good questions. We're going to be briefer with some of our episodes, or more brief. I'm not great at English. I'm a history teacher. But what we want to be able to do here is interact with you guys a little bit more, whether it's when we have a guest on taking some different questions or doing a few more mailbag episodes just to keep the conversation rolling. And first question here was kind of about a prospect from last year's draft. It's from Drew J at Drew Cant Hoop. That's about Walker Kessler. Why was Walker Kessler undervalued as a prospect? And what can it teach us about future prospects? I thought that was a fantastic question and a great way to start this this draft cycle mailbag segment. Uh, I missed on, on Walker Kessler last year. I think that everybody knew he was a dominant interior presence at Auburn. But we saw the ways that he was used in Bruce Pearl's 
defensive scheme where he was brought away from the basket a few more times than I personally would have done. He was showing at the level of the ball screen, hard hedging and trying to recover, which he doesn't have the lateral quickness for. And he getting these spurts offensively where he seemed to, to float to the perimeter and be somebody that I don't think NBA teams would have valued, which is an inefficient pick and pop shooter, someone who wants to try to prove that he has that skill away from the basket. What we're seeing this year at Utah has been a lot more uh, pick and roll centric, a lot more stand finish near the basket, which has allowed him to be much more efficient on the offensive end of the floor. So at least on that side of things, I, I got to give credit to Will Hardy and the Utah Jazz staff for getting him to buy into his role in a way that I don't think he necessarily did as much at Auburn. But why didn't we see the defense stuff coming? To be honest with you, I think that there's just an element of not wanting to take the risk on big men, particularly in the first round. And, and I have been one of the, the leading guys over the last couple of years beating the drum of saying, if it's not a very versatile, elite, top-tier big man, I don't necessarily want to take them in that first round, you know, only guys that are going to be top 10 prospects are guys that I'm really keen on taking the first round. And I've started to change my tune on that partially because Walker Kessler has succeeded in the way that he has. You don't have to be this super young big man with both switchability and drop coverage upside in order to gain my attention. Walker Kessler proved that he could do it last year at Auburn with his production. He was great in drop coverage. The Utah Jazz and any team that drafted him has been really smart about keeping him exclusively in that drop type of coverage, and he's continued to expand his minutes. Now, I saw first play out of the All-Star break. The Utah Jazz ran a play to get him a corner three. Like I do think there is room for him to be an effective three-point shooter down the line, but shot selection pretty much is, is going to be what the name of the game is for Kessler. He can't float out to the perimeter and try to make that the staple of his game. While at Auburn, I thought there were times when he was trying to prove that a little too much. But a great question. I think we're continuing to learn and, and evolve on the fly here. My personal philosophy about bigs continues to evolve year after year as they are valued differently in the NBA game. And let's face it, I think more teams this year are playing at the level of the screen or more aggressive type of coverages than specifically with drops. So maybe this is a year where I start to tilt a little bit more towards athleticism, lateral quickness, movement skills, as opposed, as opposed to just eating up space on the inside. But Walker Kessler, he might be the exception to the rule, man. This guy was really good at, at, at Auburn. It, it was just a miss on my part and the part of many other scouts. Tingus Pingus, with a beautiful name that is, uh, asked us, outside of the projected lottery players right now, which guy am I most confident in will be an all-star at some point in their career? I think it's a great question. It's one that I'm not really certain I would know how to answer because I think consensus, at least as deep as the lottery goes, is a little bit strange right now. Like I would put my money on Jalen Hood Shafino out of Indiana, but I do think that there are a lot of different people and outlets who are considering him as a lottery guy right now. We've been on on JHS as a lottery pick for probably the last month. Uh, really, really polished play, playmaker out of the pick and roll. Just a good connective tissue piece. Reminds me of just a slow old man's game who who's always in control on the offensive end of the floor. Unflappable in pressure situations. I'd love to see Jalen Huchifino add 
this mismatch post-up game into his scoring arsenal because if he can do that, he's going to be able to be a, a legitimate mismatch nightmare for teams when he plays the one, and I do think that's his best, best position. Uh, outside of that level, I mean, looking at a couple guys here, you know, I think Derek Lively and, and Derek Whitehead at Duke are two guys who are starting to to reclaim their preseason stock in my eyes. Whitehead is going to be about athleticism and, and how much his body can heal after what's been a challenging freshman season for him with the Blue Devils. And Lively, I think it's just all about the defensive upside. You know, if, if we're talking about guys like Rudy Gobert and Jaron Jackson Jr. making all-star teams over the last couple of years, the one guy who's not mentioned in the lottery conversation right now who has that defensive potential would absolutely be Derek Lively. So uh, maybe a little bit biased towards those Duke guys just because of my first impression on them and, and what the expectations I had for them coming into the year. But if there were three guys I would bet on outside of the consensus lottery right now to become all-stars, it would be Hood Shafino, Whitehead, and Derek Lively. John Grooms asked us about guys in the lottery again. For current lottery projected picks, what is the weakness you feel teams will be most cautious towards based on shifting league trends? And that's an, an interesting question. You know, he's asking basically, is there somebody whose elite skill allows for, for greater forgiveness of any of the flaws that they have? I think size and quickness are are two areas going to have a seven foot wingspan and be one of the bigger guys on the court. You have to be a top tier athlete. You have to have great lateral quickness and probably have pretty good length. So this is where I, I end up getting a little bit worried about Keontae George. I've had him really high on my board coming into the season because I see the offensive upside for him. I think he's going to play so well next to other star players and be a really good second or third option because he gets so many more open looks created for him. But on the defensive end, while George is physical, and I do appreciate that about him, I worry about him getting beat a lot at the point of attack, that if you play him at the one particularly where he's 6'5", and, and you know that's a spot that he has a strength advantage, I think he gets blown by at the point of attack but he ends up making your team rather small if you were to play him at the two. Like a guy like Nick Smith or Cason Wallace who are around the same size, they're pretty good athletically. Smith is really long. Cason Wallace is just a fantastic defender all around. You don't worry about them becoming mismatches at the other end of the floor. I've seen potential for Keontae to guard, to keep people in front. But if the way that the league is trending in terms of size and positional fluidity, particularly in terms of two through four, this may be one of those guys who struggles a little bit more on the defensive end. So I appreciate the question there from John Grooms. I uh, hope I answered that one in, or at least interpreted the question the right way there. Cade Hale asked another question about our guy, Jalen Hushifino. And I, I referred to him in a question or two ago, but just wanted to throw that out there and give Kate a shout out here. What do you think Jalen Hudshafino could be in the NBA, and where is he ranked for you now? I have Hudshafino at 13 on my newest, uh, most updated big board. It hasn't been made public yet, so if anyone's checking on our, our latest YouTube videos or spreadsheets, hasn't been updated there yet, but JHS inside the lottery for me. Uh, I see a little bit of Andre Miller to his game. And he's got a little bit more burst, a little bit more speed with the ball in his hands than Miller. 
but the poise, the pace, the creativity with the ball in his hands, he can be crafty and creative without being able to get an advantage with his first step. I'm mesmerized every time I watch Huchifino operate in the pick and roll, but that's where my desire to have him add that mismatch post offense comes from because I think it complements a really crafty, savvy player like Andre Miller was in the way that would really help Jalen Huchifino create a marginal advantage for his team at the one. If he can be a mismatch post option, operate down low, create and force double teams, kick out and pass to others, have a dependable righty hook or these crafty up and unders that he goes to, I think he becomes an ultimately tougher offensive player to guard. All right. Looking down here, one last question that we have here. Oh, we'll go two more. We'll go two more questions here. Filipowski season got one in right before the buzzer as we're recording this. If you're a team like the Pelicans, assuming that they end up in the lottery, or the Pacers, where you have a lot of your core already in place, would you rather try to hit a single and get a missing piece role player or view the fact that you have a deep roster already as the opportunity to swing on one of the higher ceiling guys? A fantastic question here in terms of draft philosophy because the players and the structure of your roster right now definitely impacts what your your tolerance is for a high-level swing in the upcoming draft. I think it's much more dependent on trying to answer the question, how quickly do you believe you can compete? For the Pelicans, I think they can compete right now. It's not even their own lottery pick. They're, they would inherit this one from the Lakers most likely in that pick swap. If that's the case, then swing for the fences because you already have a playoff-based core. I think that there's enough depth there with both wing players and checking so many different boxes that they don't need to be so secure on saying, you know, if we're just one role player away, you can probably get that guy as a veteran to fill out the roster. I would view that as the appropriate situation to try and swing for the fences if the evaluation and the range that that draft pick is in makes it the right opportunity to do so. If you're the Pelicans, I don't know. I don't know about this one because part of me wants to think, yeah, go for the high ceiling swing, get that second scorer that you desperately need next to Tyrese Halliburton. But I also think that they're also they're in a position to just keep chipping away at this thing that, you know, they're not going to turn the corner next year. And as a result, if you could just take two future lottery picks that are good staples, starter caliber players, that's going to be what ends up helping Indiana be a sustainable team over the long run. So uh, I've seen Jarris Walker be mentioned as a perfect fit for the Indiana Pacers over the last couple of weeks. I'm totally on board with that. I think Jarris in Indiana makes a ton of sense, even if there's a guy like an Asore Thompson still available on the board. Jarris is just such a good fit with them, with their culture, with the positional needs that they have. And I don't think that he moves the needle so far in year one that it takes the Pacers out from getting another valued lottery pick in 2024. So anticipating the timeline, knowing when we're ready to compete is kind of what, what drives this question right here. But if I were Indiana, yeah, I probably would still consider if they end up falling a little bit deeper into the, the lottery, taking that, uh, that high upside swing if a guy who fits them is there. Last question 
and it comes from a good friend of ours, Maxwell Baumbach. Uh, if you're not following Max on on Twitter at Bomboards, make sure you do so. One of my my most respected scouting buddies uh, does an unbelievable job, really deep, goes goes into so much detail, not just on the prospects that he covers, but in trying to leave no stone unturned. So if you're not following Max, make sure you do so. He asked kind of a two-pronged question here. Uh, which prospect do you think has a lower floor than people are accounting for? I'm going to stop there and not read the second part of the question. I'm going to try to answer that. A lower floor than most people are accounting for. I actually think it's Cam Whitmore. And I have been huge on the hype train for Whitmore throughout this entire process. I coached against him last year when he was in high school. He absolutely destroyed us with his physical tools. But one thing that I continue to worry about is this feel for the game as a creator that Cam Whitmore is a bully and somebody who uses his athleticism to blow past guys, to get his shoulder into them, to finish at the rim. And in theory, that should pop a hell of a lot more on an NBA basketball court. But I think what I worry about is people tend to excuse some of his shortcomings right now, just based on his age. He's young for his class. He's missed a lot of time in high school. While that is encouraging from a developmental standpoint, it also means that there's a, a significant amount of risk that comes with trying to draft him. So, look, I'm not betting against Whitmore, but I don't hear a lot of conversations in discussions that I have with scouts or scouting buddies, people online. I don't see a lot of people mention this potential downside for a guy like Whitmore. I would completely not be shocked if he ends up going in the 8-14 to 14 range on draft night just because there are so many things additionally that he needs to be taught. Now, second half of this question here, which Maxwell brought up, who could be a false ceiling prospect who kind of exceeds their perceived potential? It's a good question because false ceilings are uh, a huge part of this draft community that people talk about. It's almost like it's a certainty. He's never going to average 20 points a game in the NBA. He's much more of an off-ball player than on. So much of this is dependent on what players are allowed to show, what they are asked to do on their college or pre-draft teams. You know, I talk about the Kentucky effect, Kentucky effect a lot, and it's something that I've learned from watching guys like Jamal Murray, Tyler Hero, so many Kentucky players in the backcourt who were siphoned off into this off-ball role or specifically told to catch and hold the ball top of the key while everyone runs and screens around them, not run a ton of pick and rolls in their offense, that there's so much more diversity that these guards, these guards have in their portfolios that John Calipari's offense doesn't necessarily allow them to use. So my first inclination here is to kind of always go toward Case and Wallace in this answer that even though I'm not incredibly high on his offensive ceiling, I think that he's the one guy who I, I would have to look back on and say, you know, why didn't I see that coming? Why didn't I know that he was kind of held back and, and constricted in some ways at Kentucky, that he's a much better offensive player than we think? The, the other guy here who, who gets accused of having a little bit of a false ceiling at times is, look, I, I, I don't talk about him a lot in this regard, but I think Anthony Black has kind of been siphoned into this role of being much more of a connector piece and not necessarily a scorer. And part of it is because he doesn't have the jump shot down right now. He is such a good passer and he competes on the defensive end. But 
I see the tools. I've seen growth in terms of his shooting form, his comfort off the bounce. He's a lot better of a stop-start athlete than I ever thought he would be coming into this cycle. There's real opportunity for him to add different parts of scoring to his arsenal. He hasn't done it yet, and I'm, again, not saying that I would bet on it happening, but I do think that there's a little bit of a, a false ceiling conversation going on by saying that he's much more of a connective piece, a pass-first guy, a, somebody who's going to struggle to score at the NBA level. Well, Hoopaholics, so good to be back. Thank you for your questions tonight. We're going to keep some of these episodes short and sweet, trying to come at you once or twice a week here as we get into draft season. And I promise you, moving forward, we're going to have a lot of great guests and fascinating conversations coming on here on the Box and One podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you leave us some sort of a rating. Five stars would be great. Comments below. We love hearing and interacting from you guys. Thank you so much for all the support throughout this winter. It is good to be back here on the pod. Follow us on, on Twitter at the box and one underscore my YouTube channel, Adam Spinella for a lot more scouting report videos. They're going to start to be rolling out here over the next several weeks and then find us on Substack for the, the entirety of our work. That's the box and As always great to spend the evening with you. We'll talk to you soon.